The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. The Jericho Network on Westwood One. All right, Michael Riccardi is a survivor of one of the deadliest nightclub fires in American history. He was at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island, on February 20th, 2003, uh, just about 13 years ago. The night the club went up in flames and 100 people lost their lives in that fire. Uh, one of the greatest tragedies in American history. And the craziest thing was it happened at a Great White concert, if you like um, rock and roll, 80s hair metal. Great White was a, a huge band, once bitten, twice shy, Face the Day, Mr. Um, Bone, House of Broken Love. They had a lot of hits at that time frame. So Mike and his best friend, Jim Gahan, uh, went to see Great White. They had their own college radio show, had scored an interview with singer Jack Russell, earlier in the evening then were given free tickets to the gig and ended up second row from the stage fire started broke out and within 90 seconds the entire place burned to the ground 100 people died in that blaze michael riccardi made it out of the station that night but his best friend did not so now 13 years later mike has written a book detailing that night's events paying tribute to his friend the book is called just a thought away and Michael is here on Talk is Jericho to share this harrowing, emotional, terrifying story uh, about escaping the fire and reminisce uh, about the friend, the best friend he still misses to this day. It's one of the most emotional episodes in, in Talk is Jericho history. And uh, it's an incredible story that Mike uh, w- w- was, was, was gracious enough to share with us uh, in its entirety. Talk is Jericho, baby. Okay, so it's the thirteenth um, anniversary, and 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 Mike, you can help me with this. The worst uh, disaster in American history. Talking about the Station Nightclub fire. Correct. And, and is that is that official? I think the actual stat was it was the fourth deadliest nightclub fire in U.S. history. A mm-hmm. um, hundred people perished that night, so may may not be the worst quote disaster, but it certainly ranks right what up a tragedy, there. Tragedy, whatever oh, the word abs- would be, right? Tragedy, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, for, for people that don't know, it was a, a great white concert at a place right. called the Station. Correct. Um, West War- West Warwick, Rhode Island. Um, a roadhouse style venue, literally something you would see in the movie Roadhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorites of all time, by yeah, the way. Classic, yep. Yeah, classic. And literally, it was called the station. It actually used to be a bus station years ago, and had been transformed into this just rock and roll dive nightclub. So yeah, you know, I've I've played the mall, and I'm sure yep. you've been to a lot of gigs. So is this one of those places that it's just basically one big 
room with a couple of like like a yep so, tables and that sort of a, of yep. a venue. So so you walked in and again just a one story building, old it was made you know wooden you know roadhouse venue. You walked in, there was you know the hallway with the ticket counter. Um, your feet are sticking to the floor from beer spills and God knows what else was on that floor. <laughs> fluids, yeah, that, various we'll, fluids. We'll leave it generally uh, <laughs> at, at that term. You walk in, there was a horseshoe bar over to the left where, you know, patrons would hang out before a gig would happen. Um, you know, I, I can't recall if they had a pool table. That was my first time at the station. I had never, really? never been there before. We had been to a couple other venues like that. Actually, my first interview was with a Talk is Jericho alum. Gary Sharon was my first interview. We met him at another um, venue in Lemonster, Mass. A little bit better than that, um, but the station was like your typical rock and roll roadhouse. Then off to the right was, you know, the general admission standing area, the soundboard, the stage, the hallways for the bathroom. But again, it you know, not a very big place at all. I mean, now when when you say it was your first interview, and just to fill in, this is, this is Mike Riccardi. He was actually there that night, and out of the hundred people that passed away and perished, obviously Mike did not. He made it out of the fire. Right. He wrote a book called Just the Thought Away, which yep. I believe you sent it to me via Twitter. Yes, we is, yep, reached out on Twitter, and then yeah, got you the hard copy of it, and yeah, and which we, is an amazing. Uh, uh, I mean, I say amazing, not in like you know, it's it's an incredible piece of work because you tell the whole tale of what exactly happened. Now, now you mentioned. Mentioned um, that it was Gary Schroen was your first interview, right? Interview for what? So we had a so my Who's friend, uh, my friend Jim Gayen, who who tragically passed away that night. Um, we started a rock and roll radio show in the fall of 2002 called Jim and Mikey's Power Hour. And our tagline, because we celebrated the 1980s hair bands, heavy metal, that era, our tagline was Jim and Mikey's Power Hour, quote, two decades too late. <laughs> so we celebrated Poison, Motley Crue, Warrant, you know, all those Gray bands. White. Gray White, obviously. Yeah. Gray White was one of Jim's favorite bands. Is this, is this a college station? College or? station, yep. And actually, you know, we were masters of marketing because we only had a 14-watt transmission antenna out at Nichols, uh, Nichols and Dudley Mass, where we went to college. The 14 watt is not very strong. We, we barely got off the campus, but when we would contact artists, we would say, oh, we're a tri-state radio station. You know, we reach, you know, you know thousands of people. We're going to help promote your show. And they bought it. I mean, like, we, I think they could just sense that we were two young kids on a rock and roll dream, and they were helping us live that out. So Jim and I would do these interviews. We interviewed Gary Schroen as our first one. We did a couple local acts. But then when we saw Great White was getting back together uh, in 2003 with at least some form of the original lineup, Jack Russell and Mark Kendall, we were stoked. We're like, all right, we've got, it. We've got to try to nail Jack or Mark for an interview. And at that time, actually, I'm, I'm sure a name that's very uh, synonymous with the nightclub fire, Dan Beakley, who actually was the tour manager who physically set the pyro off that night, he was the one who granted us the interview. He was Great White's tour manager. Great White's tour manager at that time, correct. So how did you get a hold of him? We actually now again, Chris. You got to back in two thousand two, two thousand three. There was no social media. There was no smart right. devices. So we literally. I mean, the internet was still very prevalent and popular. Just starting. To Just starting. Correct. Um, so we got on the internet and we started researching like their press people, their you know their management, and we got a hold of the band's manager out in L.A. And after several weeks of phone tag, they gave us Dan Beakley's cell phone number, and we arranged it directly with Dan. So you guys are hustling. This is Jim and yourself. Were you guys like high school buddies or junior no, high we, school buddies? Or no, just we met in college. No, we actually met. It's 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 an ironic story. We met in the fall of two thousand one. Um, we actually met on nine eleven. Really? So it was okay. our first. It was our first. I'm sorry, second week of classes. He was a transfer student. I was a freshman. 
I'm getting breakfast one morning. I've got my Poison Power to the People tour t-shirt on, and he comes up, compliments me on the shirt. We start talking music, and the rest is history. Which is so funny when you get that because I, I'm sure you know the story, but uh, you know Lars Ulrich and Brian Slagle, Correct. who runs Metal Blade Records, yep. met, I think, at a concert somewhere because Brian was wearing a Saxon shirt and Lars came up to him and was like you like Saxon like yes and they became friends and that's when you see guys I mean I've always said this like like rock and roll especially heavy metal it's such a small community right and when you see somebody else who likes the music that you like you automatically become friends to a certain degree without even really knowing them and back in that day even a couple months before the fire happened even before our Sharon interview Gary Sharon which is November 2002 we saw Jack Russell on a solo tour in the same venue where we interviewed Gary Sharon. And again, like I said, no big internet really yet, no social media, but you go to these shows, you recognize the faces. Oh, hey, I saw you at Crew in 99, or you know, you just, you're a small yeah. niche community, especially music of that genre, which was kind of fading away in terms of mainstream popularity. Sure it was, yeah. So it really was a small family. You know, it's interesting to me, you, you said something in an interview um, where you mentioned that you wrote this book because you hear about the, the fire, you know, Right, and it's 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 it's, a, it's such a unbelievable story that you're gonna that we're gonna talk about. But 100 people died, mm-hmm. but it just becomes a number of 100. But you're actually telling you you mentioned there's 100 different stories, right? And, or 400 different stories of the people that that because what, what's the capacity of the place about 400? Well. I, I didn't really research the fire codes or anything. They were way over capacity that night. But, I mean, I've been in a lot of different small venues like that with, you know, both for the interviews and for our show. Someone would be lying if they told me there was less than 400 people in the club that night. And I think, I think they only had a 250 capacity. Well, and that's the thing, too. I've read a couple other books because um, it was very interesting to me. Obviously, like we mentioned, it's a very small community worldwide. And when something like that happens, at a, at, a, at a rock show, especially, you know, Great White, who's, right. a, who's a, a rock band that we all know, yeah. you feel a part of it, and, um, and you, right. feel, you feel the, the, the pain of it. So, so yep. to look into that, this nightclub, we say nightclub, this venue. Venue, right, yeah. I mean, this, this, a nightclub actually had, like, you know, working fire exits and, and sprinklers. This was a, this was a, a venue. A You're venue, right. yeah. but it seemed almost it was the perfect storm to have this disaster happen. The, Every single thing that could have happened happened. happened. The building was made, it was a wooden building. There was pine knot ceilings, no sprinkler system because it had been grandfathered in. And there was poly. Mean, hold on a second. I didn't want to what do you mean yep. it's been grandfathered so, in? So, from what I read, and again, you know, I wasn't too up on the laws and the codes and whatnot, but because it was such, I don't know if it was like historically um, tagged, the building itself, when it switched over from the, the bus station, I think it used to be, it didn't have to retrofit to current like Rhode Island oh, like fire sprinklers. Standards. Exactly. So, the structural elements had been grandfathered in. Okay. So, that's right. So they we're saying, just in case you guys didn't pick that up, no sprinklers. No sprinklers. Nothing. Nothing. So continue. Pine, pine knot ceilings. Pine no knot ceilings. And what actually did catch fire, which I know we'll get into, that foam padding on the wall was aligned with polyurethane, which is worse than gasoline catching on fire. It's basically like solid gasoline. Yeah, pretty much. And they put this up to... They, they put that up because, again, Roadhouse Venue, in the middle of a residential neighborhood in teeny tiny Rhode Island, neighbors were complaining about noise. Oh. They put this up to insulate the late crowds, you know, the noise that would, you know, that would tick off the nearby neighbors. And this is almost like the old school, like putting eggshell cartons up in your garage. That's to exactly what sound, it looked like. Right? Yep. You're right. Yep. So, and, and then um, 
fire eggs that's not very prevalent. You walk in, and again, you know, I would never think at that time, I'm 19 years old, I'm, I'm not thinking I'm going to a rock show, I'm going to have to fight for my life later on. They're not making announcements on fire exits and, you know, exit mm-hmm. strategies, nothing. You're just going off of just your instincts and what you know. Mm-hmm. You, which, never, you never think about, like, you know, let's look for the fire exit when you come. Although, exactly. Oh. after that happens, I'm you, sure. You, oh, you better sure. believe it now. I mean, you know, I fly a lot for work and I travel a lot. I, the first thing I do, whether I'm on a plane, I'm at a concert, the first thing I look for anywhere I go now, just wow. that exit sign. So, so you track down – how do you pronounce his last name? Beakley? Beakley. Dan Beakley. Beakley. So you track down Dan Beakley. Yep. And you say, hey, can we get an interview? And- yep. So at this point, we had our – the radio station manager at the school. She also served as one of the dean of students at the time. She issued us like press credentials and wrote up the whole kind of formal college thing. And we would fax that – or fax. Again, I'm showing the, the, the time <laughs> yeah. again. So we would fax over the, the cover sheets and all the, the credentials. And he granted us the interview. And, and again – Maybe it was just out of the fact that, you know, at that time in 2003, Great White, still a very popular name, but I'm sure radio stations and other press outlets weren't banging down Jack Russell's door well, yeah, for, sure. for an interview. So yeah. maybe he just thought, hey, what the hell, we'll give these two kids a chance and we'll see what happens. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something, and you mentioned still popular to some, but, you know, any press opportunities, like we have a, a rule in Fozzie that we never turn down a, a press request. Exactly. Right. I mean, unless it's just totally ridiculous, but yeah. someone in the band will do it. Exactly. So, you know, they're on tour. I mean, I think the worst press is probably no press. Well, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, so someone's calling up. You guys got a radio station. Hey, what do you think? Correct. So, yep. Um, so, so tell us about, like, beforehand, like, like I said, I want to hear the hu- human story. I mean, you guys are showing, yep. like, did you get off work and you're going to the, sh- to the show? Yep. And- so, so that day. That night. Yep. That so, day. That, so that day, Chris, we're, you know, we're waking up like two kids on Christmas morning. I mean, we always prepped a lot for our interviews, you know, the Gary one, the first one. But that morning, there was just – there was just something in the air, and I'm not talking about just the typical New England winter, which was frigid <laughs> that day. We wake up, we, you know, we had morning classes, we, you know, we got a quick gym workout in, and then I had to work from 3:30 to 5:30 in the library at school. I did my work study there for four what years. What were you taking in university? Uh, I would study in marketing. Okay, and gym? Uh, gym, I think it was general business, okay. just in general studies. So I'm like, you know, so we finally get the word from Beakley, hey, you guys got to be here at 6:15, 6:20ish. We'll do the interview at that time. So I had to work three thirty to five thirty. We get up, we we come, you know, we compile our questions, which we, you know, threw away and you know recompiled about ten to fifteen times because because well, Jim saw this as like you know what, I want this to be as professional as we can possibly be. Like we want this to springboard into something else. Mm, so you wanted to use this interview to try and get correct a show or bigger guests. Correct. Whatever, course, so yeah. like Jim, we've got we've got to be as professional as we can be with our little VHS recorder that we bought at Kmart. I mean, we're, we recorded it on VHS <laughs> and cassette that day. So. We get up. We're having a great day. We go through, you know, we go to our classes. We have lunch. Go to the gym. You know, just you know, just our adrenaline's pumping. I go to work. I'm like Jim, right at five thirty, come to the library. We'll make it. And he was just all nervous that we weren't going to make it on time. So he shows up at the library when I'm working about halfway through my shift, and I'm like, I'm like, oh man, like now you're getting me all excited. Like I still got another hour and a half in here. I ended up leaving my post about uh, <laughs> a half an hour early, and I just left a note for my coverage. I'm like, hey man, you know I gotta go. I got a big thing tonight. Like I'll deal with the boss in the morning, no problem. But we were just that excited for it. So if someone wanted to take out a book, that <laughs> uh, well, and not only that, I worked uh, the, the campus switchboard too. So for half an hour, if you. 
called the college, you weren't getting anywhere. So, you know, I was fully ready to take the punishment the next we morning. Got a rock show to go to. I'm yeah. like, I'm thinking, I- I've got to do this. That happened to me once uh, in '94. Uh, I was working for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Okay. And we had some little, some little small show like in Hazard, Kentucky, or something. Mm-hmm. And I've never done this before, but I was like, Kiss was playing in Nashville. Oh, of course. And it was the Revenge tour. And Revenge is my favorite Kiss record. Nice. And I was like. I got to go to this show. Yep. It's the only time I ever no-showed a wrestling event because I said oh, I ran man. out of gas on the side of the road. I called Cornette. I'm like, <laughs> once again, from a pay phone at a gas station, yep. Jimmy, I ran out of gas. I'm not going to make the show. He's like, you stupid idiot. What are you doing? <laughs> and I don't think anyone ever knows that I went and actually saw Kiss, but I was I was willing to take the – Just right. Like you said, I'm leaving my post. I got to see this you'll show. Deal, you'll deal with it later. Yeah, exactly. 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 So sorry, sorry, Jimmy. <laughs> um, so we, you know, we, we leave the library. I'm like, all right, you know what? Screw it, let's do it. But now again, I'm going to show the the lack of technology at the time again. So we get we get no further down the end of the road in college. Oh wait, man, I forgot my CD book. When you actually had books of CDs, you had to <laughs> you know rifle through to listen to music on the That's way. Right. You had to carry the whole thing with you. And we always had a rule uh, when Jim and I would go to concerts. Whatever band we were going to see, we would not listen to on right. the ride down there. I'm like, all right, I got Poison, I got Crew, I got Def Lepp. We we got it. Don't worry. How many concerts have you guys gone to? Um. Probably about half a dozen or so at that time. You know, um, we saw a, a lot of great shows. We saw a couple Poison tours together. We saw Our Lady Peace. We saw Jack Russell. We saw some local acts. So we were just really like, even though the show was focused on '80s metal, we're starting to branch out and you know be more diverse in what we were playing and what we were covering. So yeah. about I'd say half a dozen, six to eight, give or okay, take. Okay, gotcha. So we get our CDs. All right, we're on the we're on the way, and you know we hit traffic on the way down. Like every like the the, the worst possible storm is coming together. You know, yeah. I had to stop and get gas so we finally you know we did pull up around about uh a little late 625 i want to say and i remember we kept switching cds throughout the whole way and at that point one of my favorite albums to to this day even though it's not quote 80s metal is bruce springsteen's the rising i love that album just the emotions Mm -hmm. it was written out of so we we put that on as we're pulling into the the highway where the station was off of and when we were pulling into the station waiting on a sunny day was the last track playing and I'll, that, that, that'll play something into later on. I'll, I'll, I swear I'll get back to that. And I remember us just jamming out because we both loved that album. It's like, all right, Bruce is off. Let's go interview Jack. Mm-hmm. So that's we got there about 625, 630-ish. Nervous? Very nervous. I mean, we, we, we kept going through the questions, rehearsing them. But it's like, hey, man, we need to be as ready as we ever can be at this point. You know, it's, it's, sure. we're here. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, let's get back to Michael Riccardi. Uh, you and Jim had just gotten to the station nightclub to do your interview with Jack Russell of Great White. So to pick up the story from that point, did you knock on the bus door? Or? No. Well, we uh, so we had been told, you know, when you walk in, ask for Dan. And again, at this point, there's no texting. There's no, you know, hey, Facebook post, I'm here. There's nothing. So we walk in and we're encountered by this big, burly bouncer, really intimidating looking guy. And we're like, oh, no, like, you know, we're going to get bagged. We're out of here. And we go up and say hi to him. And he goes, hey, you know, I'm, hey, man, we're Jim, we're Mike. You know, we're here from the radio show. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, no worries. Dan told me all about that. 
guy's name actually um, he tragically passed away that night his name was Steve Mancini he was in the opening band that night too and after you know he wanted us to do press for him too nice nice guy so he was playing and he was also working correct he, he was a bouncer at the club and in the opening gotcha, band that yeah. night so we get in he's like alright um, we sat by the horseshoe bar I was only 19 at the time Jim was 21 but I swear I had water that night <laughs> so Dan comes over introduces himself and he's like hey guys we're just doing sound check getting a few things ready I'll come grab you when you know when we're set to go so we just sat there and again going over the questions and just you know talking with some band personnel it was at that time we noticed that a, there was a cameraman kind of floating around the venue which we thought was a little odd but you know maybe it's great whites filming something who knows so about five minutes later dan comes and grabs us and he brings us on the bus um now we walked ironically enough we walked out the side exit that was right next to the stage where the fire ended up forming later on that night so we go out that we go onto the onto the bus and it was my first time on like a big band's tour bus and it was it was basically you know your your standard you know tour bus for, you know by my by my you know standards Standard, I yeah. guess exactly right. from you what I'm better yeah. exactly so we sit there and you know again I've got pictures of Jack Russell on my college dorm wall you know huge <laughs> posters and whatnot and let's just say when I first saw him he was not the Jack Russell from those posters <laughs> he put on a little weight but hey it, it happens time has not been kind and to Mr Russell yeah he's woofing down. Wendy's like, you know, hey guys, I'll be ready in a couple minutes, no problem. He's, you know, sit down, get set up. So, you know, we get our, we get our Casio, you know, VHS recorder set up. We get our cassette recorder and the microphone was just plugged into our little recorder. <laughs> so he sits down and um, we each, usually when we would interview, uh, at least somebody from the band's crew would be able to film it while both Jim and I were sitting there. That particular night, Jim and I couldn't do that. So I, he was filming me and then vice versa. So we only had one of us in the shot with Jack at each time. We each had about, you know, 10 to 15 minutes with him. And he was just such a nice, humble guy. You could tell it's somebody who, you know, he just said, I still do it for the music. And we had a great interview. He told us about the state of the music industry, his songwriting inspirations. It was just, Chris, it was just a really great, like, down-to-earth chat. One of those things when you leave, you guys are pumped. You're like, yes, we high-fiving. And that's, that's what you want to see from your exact heroes. Right. Yeah. Now, and I always kind of had a rule what we both did. I would always ask like a stupid, immature question while Jim was the more professional one. Actually, you know, when we interviewed Gary, I asked him if he still owned Aquanet hairspray and he just mm. died laughing. <laughs> but that night we were both just really on point, professional. We wanted this to really, you know, springboard into something. And after the interview was over, Again, it was just one of those chats where, like, we could see, like, while Jim was filming me and vice versa, we're just giving each other, like, you know, yeah, the, the, the yeah. fist pump while it's going on. It's At, the ultimate high. It, 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 was, it was adrenaline just kicking right through my body. It gets over, and Dan Beakley comes up. They finished up more stuff in the venue. He comes up, and he goes, hey, guys, that was great. You know, Jack was really impressed. I'm like, oh, thank you. He goes, what do you guys feel about – now, that was a Thursday night at the show in Rhode Island. He goes, what do you guys feel about coming out to Hartford this coming Sunday? We're playing the Webster Theater in Hartford, Connecticut. Which we, is a nice thing. Which is very big. I've, I've seen Vince Neil in there, Sebastian Bach. I've seen some good shows in there. I'm like, wow, that's, that's a huge step up. He goes, this time we want you to interview at least Jack and Mark – possibly the whole band we're like oh wow. man I, I just you know we were just stoked so you know uh, it was that was again another natural high we, yeah. i'm like for two kids out of a, a rinky dink 14 watt radio station in dudley mass oh yeah this was the ultimate high you could get it was it was fantastic so i mean i mean like you said i remember when i was 19 i didn't know shit so so like you said to, to be 19 i still don't and have that feeling <laughs> so um 
So you, so you leave the bus. You're excited. Yep, we leave the bus, and he said, you know, guys, I mean, the show's not starting till at least, like, you know, the opening acts will go on in a couple hours. So like, all right, let, let's go get something to eat. Like, let's listen to the interview. Let's edit some things. And I'm, when I say editing, I mean, like, you know, stop, re, you know, record, you know, delete. <laughs> yeah. Very, very primitive. Yeah. So we go to a Taco Bell. We, you know, we stuff our face there. And then um, remember when actually Strawberry's music stores were opened? <laughs> we stopped at a Strawberry's and just, you know, record window, stores. Record yeah. stores, yep. So we, we window shopped for about two hours. And again, like, you know, I think uh, Jim may have picked up a CD that night. So, uh, you know, we get back to the venue. And when we're driving back down, I remember thinking, hey, Jim, put put Waiting on a Sunny Day. Let's, let's put that back on. Like that that song, I don't know what it was. It just really resonated with us. I'm like, you know, I had, I had all the 80s metal CDs, but we were just hooked on that album. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it's kind of like, you know, poetic, you, you know, it, there was just something that resonated with us. Right. So we pull back into the station now at about, I want to say like 9.30ish, and now it's jammed. I mean, like the parking lot that had been empty cars everywhere so we had to park on a side street like right next to a car dealership again i thought my car was going to get towed but just like leaving my work post earlier on that day i will deal with the consequences later no big deal yeah now we get in chris and it's shoulder to shoulder it was jammed so earlier you're saying there's about 400 people and you think the cap the official oh, cap they went about three or two if if that right. way over capacity now even after the interview um you know one thing I forgot to mention that, you know, we're two college kids on a budget at that time. So yeah. we didn't mind, you know, paying for the ticket if we had to. So when the interview was over, we go to Dan like, hey, Dan, you know, we haven't bought tickets yet. Like, where can we get some in case it sells out? He goes, oh, no worries, man. Like, I put you guys on the guest list and, and come back and hang out with us after. We're like, oh, man, like this night can't get any better between the interview with Jack being being asked to come to Hartford and now hang out with the guys after. Wh- what a high we were on. So we get in. We're on the guest list. We start hanging around, and as you mentioned earlier, we see those familiar faces from people at other shows we had been to, that small rock and roll community, that family. So, you know, we connive our way, and actually Steve Mancini's band was playing at the time. Fathead was just finishing up, and then a second band called Trip was about to get on, and they, they were just all fantastic, all the bands that night. So by the time um, Trip got off and they were doing Great White's you know, uh, stage set, um, we managed to get our way, what would, what would be the equivalent of second row? I mean, it was a general admission standing Sure, but you're club right close to the where, stage, I mean, right there. You know, tragically enough, you can see Jim and I on every piece of that, of that footage. Really? Yep. And do you happen to know why all that footage exists? You're talking about the camera that was there? I, I mean, don't. You mentioned there was a cameraman walking around. Yep. I don't know why. So do you because remember- the footage you're talking about, it, and we'll get to this, is that when, when the whole thing goes down, you Correct. see it like bird's eye view. And you see a lot of footage from hours before that night, too, the band, uh, the bar staff getting ready. And I think you know, to the untrained eye, people are probably asking, why does all that exist? Mm-hmm. And let me tell you. Do you remember what happened a couple nights ago in, from that night in Chicago where 21 people were killed in the E2 nightclub? There was like a, a stampede. A Correct. Yeah. There was a fight that broke out. Um, the security staff uh, sprayed, mep- uh, I'm sorry, sprayed pepper spray in the crowd, and 21 people were killed in a stampede. Because everyone started running, and people fell down, Correct. and crushed, right? Correct. So now the owners of the station, one of them was a TV reporter in Providence at the time. They had just bought the club about two or three years prior. This was their first major show since taking ownership. They hired their cameraman to come in and shoot footage of the club for a safety documentary. You're kidding me. That's why all that footage exists that night. For like how – like a safety in, in a nightclub? Because, because even though you, sh- you see the fire forming and the band playing, they were filming like the bar staff getting ready, the kitchen staff getting ready. They were filming like a lot of different club protocols. You're kidding me. No, I, I wish I was. 
It's so ironic, right? That's never come out. I don't think it's ever really come out on the record. But yeah. Rhode Island is – you want to talk about a small community. Rhode Island is even smaller, and that was the talk of the town. That That's why all that footage was there that night. And what were the names of the owners? Uh, the Dedarians, Michael and Jeffrey, Jeffrey Dedarian. Right. Yep. I was reading um, in one of the books how they cut a lot of corners constantly. I guess they even Correct. mentioned not even selling proper tickets. Exactly. Once the tickets sold out for the cap, then they would write um, – ticket on a piece right, of paper start, and incorrect. give it to you. So they would just sell to as many people as wanted to get in. They would sell. And, and again, that night too, you could have went into any venue like that. Every club owner was probably doing it at the time. They want to make money. You know, sure. they want to, that's why they're in business. But they unfortunately, they got caught if you yeah, think about it. Right, you know? right, right. Like, like, yeah, because Great White is actually drawing. Correct. So they need to make make as much money as they can to make up for the losses for, you know, the Tuesday night bar crowd. That's right. All you people show usually up. just had like local acts and tribute bands. That probably wasn't drawn a lot. So you're right. Great White, we've got to jam the people in there right. that night. So you guys are right up close we're, to stage, second row. We're right up front, second row. Again, we're still on a high from the interview. Uh, Great White's, you know, uh, roadies and tech guys, they're getting, you know, you know they're getting ready. And, and I started to have like an appreciation for like I'm starting to see like the logistics of a rock show we were always kind of intrigued by that you know we love you know obviously the energy and the enthusiasm but now we're starting to think there's a lot that goes into putting on a show I mean as you know and we're starting to get really intrigued by that you know we're we're somewhat in the biz I guess at the time doing these interviews mm. so we're watching the roadies up there put everything together we're watching the tech guys the sound guys to us it was just really mesmerizing how it all came together yeah, you're seeing things that the average fan isn't going to be Correct. seeing. Correct. Right? We saw on the bus and earlier on that night during sound check. So now um, lights go out. And um, actually, before the lights went out, um, the cameraman got on stage again and filmed out into the crowd, like getting pumped up. And that is um, that's one of the most eerie pieces of footage because you can see people who passed away, you know, literally 10 minutes later. And you just he's filming out into the crowd and it, it's just an eerie it's an eerie sight to see i'm sure everybody's whooping it up and screaming and cheering <laughs> everyone's and you know throwing it you know <laughs> drinking crowd, you know they're, they're pumped you know fist pumping it was a great time then uh they called him dr metal he was the dj for whjy in providence he gets up there and starts throwing promotional materials into the crowd he's getting the crowd pumped up and he's promoting his show in the radio station He's throwing hats and T-shirts and, you know, koozies and whatnot. And Jim, Jim was a pretty athletic kid. He was about 6'2", 6'3", solid baseball player. He's towering over everybody, grabbing the items, giving them to the girls in the crowd. And, you know, he would just say, hey, but you have to give me your number if, if you want this shirt. You know, we were just having just such a great time. Two young kids had a great interview that night. We're starting to think about the future. Like, we could really have something in this. And, um, and we're about to see one of our favorite bands in concert in about five minutes. Lights go out. Um, we're, again, we're standing second row. You can see us right in front of the speaker. If you're if you're looking at the stage to the right, um, we see the all the band get on stage. You know the guitarist, the bassist, their other guitarist, Ty Longley, who passed that night. We see Mark Kendall get on, and then all of a sudden, you know, Jack Russell makes his you know his grand entrance, and he's you know he's swooning, he's getting the crowd going, and. All of a sudden, they kick into a hit called Desert Moon, which is a song that I, I, you know, I finally started listening to over the last couple of years. It just it, it represented so much tragedy that I couldn't. Oh my gosh, yeah. But then I started realizing it's not the song's fault. I mean, why blame the music? But it did take a long time to get over that because the, the last time I had heard those chords rip in, tragedy, sure. tragedy. Because that's the first song, and right yeah. off the bat, right off the bat, so we're shit goes we're, we're no longer. 15, 20 seconds into that show, 
the pyro goes off. And it was like a small little pyro pod that had three beams shooting out. One went straight up. One went to each side. Like sparks? Or they're, they're, they're like sparks. Like from what I understood, you could actually walk right through them and they really wouldn't burn like, you too like much. Like Goldberg used to. C- correct. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, they would just kind of like sting you a little bit. So that lasted about, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 seconds. That goes out. Crowd's going nuts. You know, fist pumping. We're high-fiving. You know, we're having a great time. And all of a sudden, that goes out. I look in the back, and I start seeing flames forming. But I thought nothing of it because they're they're forming so symmetrically on both sides. You're talking like behind the drum rise of the right, back of the stage. Where that foam padding was. Because right. the drummer was sort of like in this caved-out alcove where he kind of sat like in this little – like you know cubby almost so we see the flames going up and now Jim Jim and I look at each other we give each other a high five like wow they're really going out like you know pyro fire like this like maybe I'm starting to think all right, that footage maybe it's for like a DVD or something Mm. so we're going nuts you thought it was part of the show exactly so all of a sudden now Ty Longley who's their uh, rhythm guitarist he starts looking back with a concerned look on his face and I kind of caught that out of the corner of my eye and I'm thinking okay maybe it just hasn't gone out yet. Something's something's weird. Now he's really looking at it with a with a, a very stoic look on his face. Drops his guitar, runs into the crowd. And I'm like, Jim and I look at each other. Okay, not supposed to happen. Something's going on here. Is the band the rest of the band still playing? The rest of the band's still playing. And of course Jack is on such a high, you know, when you get in front of that crowd, you know, I mean you're sure. just you're, his adrenaline's pumping. He's oblivious to what's going on. You're not looking behind three you. feet behind him. Yeah. So now the people in the front row that were like, you know, just seconds prior had those jubilation filled, you know, fist pumps are now like they're panic driven trying to get his attention. So they finally flag him down. And at this point, like the band almost kind of like stopped in unison. He looks back and he looks back into the microphone and I'll never forget this. He just said, oh, man, that isn't good. And then chaos. I'm thinking, okay, well, wait a second. Maybe a club employee is going to get up there. Go over, like, you know, the safety protocols. All right, here, here are the exits. Just exit, you know, in a calm, collective manner. We'll get this show going, you know, as soon as this is over. Nothing. You were you were left to your own devices. What kind of fire was happening at this point in time? At this point now, by the time Jack had said what was going on, now it's hitting the ceiling. Mm. So I'm like, this is this is climbing very it's quickly. And of course, now, unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that was polyurethane oh foam God. padding on the wall. So Jim and I look at each other. All right, you know what? Let's let's get to the back of the room. Um, made it to the back of the room in a decent amount of time. And again, my my interpretation of time that night is, it, you know, it, it's so illogical that I really couldn't accurately describe how many seconds it took us to get from where we were back to where the ticket counter was. We get to the back of the venue. And things were moving okay. You know, I look at Jim, and he just kind of gives me that reassuring look, like, hey, man, everything's going to be okay. You know, we had a great night. And this this is all non-verbally. I'm just kind of thinking this Mm -hmm. based upon his expression. I'm looking at him. He gives me that look. We're going to be fine. Don't worry about it. You know, hey, we're patrons of the club. They're going to keep us safe. This isn't going to happen at a rock show. Look back, and the the smoke just overpowered the whole room. At this point, because I really hadn't been looking back, the fire is now spreading throughout the whole ceiling so the black smoke just overpowered it's pitch black and this wasn't like a Go ahead. Uh, this wasn't like a stop drop and roll kind of smoke this was a thick deadly toxic smoke it, again with the polyurethane but I didn't know that at the time so I'm thinking 
this is this really hurts. So when you turned around to walk out, was everybody walking, or were you kind of yeah, we were working f- way through the crowd, or was everyone walking? There was it was sort of like a nice fluid movement at first. People were walking back in a in a calm manner, I guess, because maybe a, maybe reality hadn't really set in what was really going on at mm-hmm. that time. They're thinking what I was thinking. Hey, we'll get out of here. You know, there might be some damage. They may cancel the show. They may have to refund us. What? Well, not us. We got in free, right. but this will be fine. They, you know, we're at a rock show. And so that smoke comes like just like, like crazy. the fog just it, rolling across the just ceiling. Just rolling across the ceiling and now it's getting down literally to within a couple inches from the floor. You oh could my gosh. you couldn't stop drop and roll. It was it was a deadly toxic smoke. And it's it, pitch black now. It's, it's covering the lights. It's pitch black now. I mean it was a dimly lit club to begin with, and all I keep hearing is just that fire alarm going off, but oh, no sprinklers. Right. Oh so Jim gives me that look just before it went pitch black and I'm thinking we're good. We're good, but I'll, but I gotta tell you, you know, I can say this. Thirteen years later, when that place went pitch black, I there there were no accurate words to describe the horror and and the torture of. I'm feeling my back getting burned now. Um, people are screaming, fighting for their lives, and I'm I'm just hoping Jim's still right behind me. We were right next to each other when when the smoke overpowered the room. I'm hoping he's right behind me, right next to me. Um, a couple seconds later, I got knocked down to the floor and I'm feeling people trample on top of me. I'm getting punched. I'm getting kicked. I started thinking I may not make it out of here. This, this, I could, I could die in this roadhouse style venue tonight after we had one of the greatest nights of our lives. I may pass away in here tonight. And even though I'm on the ground, I'm getting burned. I can feel my back burning. All I kept thinking about a lot of thoughts running through my head, but the, the, the most the most prominent ones were, all right, if it's going to go like this, just let this be quick. Let it let it be quick. And all I kept thinking about was somebody's got to tell my parents tomorrow. Somebody has to tell my family that I died. Mm-hmm. And I, I just could, I couldn't take that. It just kept running in my head. I could not take that thought. And out of nowhere, you know, call it divine intervention, call it a miracle, call it whatever you will. I was able to press myself off the floor and I stood up and it's almost like I was in that building alone. I couldn't hear anything anymore. And there was a window right there in front of me. I think I vaguely remember hearing the glass breaking and it's almost like I was dragged to safety. This window is right here. But, but even in my state of mind where I had just been, I'm thinking, is this a window to the outside of the club or is this a window to somewhere else? Am I already gone? And you just you just don't know it. Wow! Like is this a window to the afterlife or something? You, you don't know because it, it's almost like all these screams, this panic, this this chaos that I had just heard seconds earlier. It was now almost kind of like calm, and I see this window, and I'm like, all right, well, I have to go out it. I mean, I have no other choice. But right when I got out of the window, I knew exactly where I was. I mean, I'm starting to see the fire trucks now already there. The parking lot is in just a mass panic, and it was only a one-story building. So when I got out, it was just on like the it was like a handicap walkway to get up to the building. So I just kind of fell right onto that walkway. So was it a window that's kind of like waist high? And you're, yeah, if you yeah. Were, if you were looking to the front of the building, it was a, a bay window to the left of the front door. Um, that's the one I got out. And the glass already broke, so you just correct basically just basically step just out. just basically like you know kind of like almost like you're getting into the ring. I just right, you know, yeah, just one foot right, over. That's all it was. And wow. 
And I'm thinking, I don't care if it was two or three stories at that point, I've got to get the hell out of here. Right. So I'm on the ground, you know, a firefighter comes and helps me up now. Of course, I'm sitting there waiting for Jim to come out. He was right behind me. I mean, naturally, if we're in the same position, we should have been right next to each other. And firefighter starts yelling at me like, "You have to get out of here. This is this is bad." I'm like, "I'm like, I understand, but I'm I'm waiting for my best friend. You know, he's he's still in there. I haven't seen him come out yet." So, and, and I'm I'm screaming at the poor guy. I mean, I know he was just trying to do his job, but when you're in that panic mode now, I'm I'm just screaming at him, telling him, you know, you know, I may have dropped a lot of f bombs on him too. I'm like, I'm not I'm not leaving here. I have to wait for for Jim to get out. He pulls me aside and he goes, "Look at that," and he points at the tour bus sitting right there. He goes. God knows how many gallons of gas is in that thing. Get across the street now. And I'm like, oh. Finally, logic set in. All right, you know, I'll find Jim. I'll find him in the parking lot. I'll go back to my car. I get out. He got out. Everything's going to be fine. You know, we'll just, we'll see how, we'll see where the rest of this night takes us. And um, at that point, it just, it was surreal being out there. I mean, everybody that I encountered, I mean, one of the most disturbing images I saw that night was a woman who had gotten out and was so badly burned, she was she was completely naked. I don't know if it was from clothes melting off her or she just threw it off, whatever. I, I still had all my clothes intact. I took my sweater off at the time. I, I just wrapped it around her until she could get some medical help. And uh, again, it's a it's a crisp, nice, cold New England night there. February, Fe- February twentieth. It had just snowed either that day or the night before. I'm running around there shirtless in twenty degree weather, but with the adrenaline and the shock that I was in, it didn't phase me in the least bit. Just the fact that I was out, I was alive. Now I have to find Jim and just get the hell out of here. Like get as far away from this building as possible. What does the building look like at this point? Oh, at this point now. Years later, people had always told me when I when I was getting interviewed, you know, by the police and just, you know, the doctors and everything, they go, you were not in that building more than 90 seconds. When I'm telling them the story of where I was, when I got out, they said there's no way 90 seconds, two minute tops you were in that building because by about four and a half minutes, fully engulfed. The place is fully engulfed in flames. Oh, my gosh. Are people streaming just so I finally did. I came to my senses. I'm like, all right, I'll, I'll get across the street. Um, I actually, I, you know, I, I could, even though I was in, I was in shock, I could still feel that I was obviously very warm and very hot. So I just laid down into a snowbank, mm. and a firefighter, a firefighter yelled at me, no, you're going to infect those burns, get out of there. So again, I'm still like not really putting a lot of logic into my actions at that time. Cause you just, you know, yeah. I, I didn't know where I was. You know, days. So I look across the street and by that time, the news trucks were already there, the fire trucks, the ambulance, police, it was like out of an action movie. And I'm sitting there watching this. This surreal environment form right before me, and I'm thinking, "Well, wait a second! Like I usually see this in the movies, I see this on TV. Like, you know, but I was in that building a minute or two prior, and it was just it was just chaos, man. It really was. Trying to find Jim, you you had to walk up to somebody's face and look directly in them because the soot from the smoke just burned everybody. So you couldn't make out anybody's face unless you were like examining them like right in front of their face. Mm-hmm. So I must look like a crazy person just doing that, you know, all throughout the night. But, you know, I'm, I'm desperately trying to find Jim at this point. I mean, we got to get out of here. Went over to my car. I figured at one point, all right, if you got out, the car, we'll meet at the car. So I go over there. Now, we drove my car that night, and all of our interview material we had left in the car. You know, the recorders, you know, the, the notebooks, everything was all in Jim's backpack. I leaned on my car for a second and uh, just waiting for him. And at one point, I, I look into the passenger side window, and I saw all his belongings, his jacket, and I just I got that really bad feeling 
that, you know, he didn't make it. But I, I brushed that off. Hey, I got out. He's out here somewhere. I just got to find him. Maybe he already went to the hospital. And at that point, again, with the lack of technology, I left my, my Nokia prepaid cell phone back at the dorm room. He had his phone, but I had no way to really communicate and get through to him. So imagine, like, you know, the horror and torture of that night, but then you didn't have the instant gratification of, like, information these days that you have these days. So there was so much just, you know, questions, pandemonium, chaos, and you couldn't get that satisfaction right away. You actually had to... You know, wait, yeah. wait, and it, it was torture. It absolutely was. So they, um, that night, now what they did is there was a restaurant across the street called the Coesed Inn. I don't recall if it was closed at that time or they were closing up because the show started uh, exactly at 11 p.m. And by 11.04, 11.05, that building was up. So a firefighter had directed me, hey, they have a makeshift triage center over at that restaurant. You need to go over there right now. I'm like, all right, I just, at this point, I have no... I'm still trying to process everything. I don't sure. have any logical thoughts going through my head. And at this point, you know, I wrote about this woman vividly in my book. Her name was simply just Jen. She was helping me throughout the night. She saw me when I went to that restaurant. She she encountered me outside and she said, you know, you're you're badly burned. You need you need help. And I'm like, I'm I'm fine. I'm waiting for Jim. And, and I'm talking hysterically to yeah, her, like, you're saying, almost kind of like insult, like you know, you know, get away from me. Like I'm fine. So come to find out, she started telling me, she goes, no, you know, I was in there. My boyfriend was an off-duty firefighter. He told me to get right out of there. I'm just trying to help people for him. Um, they sit me down in this triage center, and uh, I, I, didn't want, I didn't know what I looked like at this point. So she's putting, like, you know, you know, she's putting cloths on my back and pouring water over me just to kind of keep me, you know, keep me calm. And an EMT would come over every now and again and say, you know, we know you're hurt. We know you're burnt, but you're walking and talking. Like, you know, you're, you're fine compared to what we have out there. You're at the low end of the totem pole. For so, of course, treatment. I'm like, you know what? Go, go deal with who you have to. Like, I can, I can, I can, I have all my, I have all my, you know, cognitive activities, my vitals and whatever you want to call it. I was fine. So Jen looks at me and she goes, do you, do you want to see a picture of yourself? Do, you know, do you want to see yourself in the mirror? And I'm like, you know what? From everything I just saw in the building, I don't think it can even be worse. So. Yeah, show it to me, and I just I broke down and lost it when she showed me that. I mean, there was just blood everywhere. I was I was burned. I mean, but I'm not really being in the shock that I was in. I knew I was injured, but not. I didn't know the extent of it. So I'm just kind of ignoring everything. You know, I'll go to the hospital whenever they'll take care of me. But when I saw that, I just really I just broke down. She, that she was broke, she showed yourself in the mirror. Yeah, she, we were sitting in this restaurant, and at this point, um, we're kind of sitting in the waiting area in the lobby, and. Um, I think she had a mirror in her purse or something, and she showed it to me, and I just I oh. broke down. It was just now I can see it, you know, directly, mm-hmm. like the result of it, and it was yeah, just it was it was too much to take right then and there. The reality of the situation, and I'm thinking, oh man, like if an EMT told me that I'm fine compared to other people, I'm thinking I can't imagine what's out there right now, and that was just that's when a lot of it was starting to hit me. So how long did you stay at the inn? Like, did they come and take you to yep. the hospital? Or yep. So what had happened? I'm at this inn, and, and they're bringing in other people. Obviously. Correct. They're bringing in people, taking people out. There's police coming in. There's firefighters, EMT, and news reporters. Which of I, course, yeah. I don't want to tell you some of the the choice terminology I had for some of them at the time. Mm-hmm. So they, I think they knew enough to leave us alone. Um, and at one point, you know, we're sitting in there, and um, I was there for about, I want to say an hour and a half, give or take. And at one point, 
Um, again, still with the cloths on my head and just water running down. I'm just trying to stay as calm as I can be. They said, all right, we're going to load you guys on a bus, and you're going to go to – it was called Our Lady of Fatima Hospital, which was in North Providence. I, again, Rhode Island's a tiny state, so I didn't know how far away it was. I want to say it was about an hour and a half later. And, and again, I, I have to say, too, during this time, now Jen is calling my parents, calling back home, calling Nichols College to, like, let them know what was going on. Like, at this point, that's what I said. I'm like, Jen, if you're going to help me, here's what you need to do. You need to – I had no idea how to get a hold of Jim um, – Jim's roommate that year was a friend from back home. I had no idea what Jim's parents' names were, how to get a hold of them. Yeah, and I'm I, thinking at that point, I hadn't met them yet. I can't make that phone call. Yeah. So one of the, one of the um, people in my book, Matt Chapman, which was his friend from back home, he took care of it. He got that going. And then Jen's talking to my parents. And my parents flew down there, and they were there in about a half an hour, which normally would take about an hour and ten, give or take. Mm-hmm. They floored it. They got there. Because my, you know, I, I remember my mother having, she said she had really bad attacks that night because my grandfather was a Worcester firefighter, and he, he died in 1971 in, a fi- in, oh my li- in the line of duty. But he died days after from injuries suffered. So this is like replaying in her head all over again. Wow. Even yep. that is so yep. st- crazy, you know? The- so, again, you know, when I think back to being in that building, you know was his spirit there with me you know i I don't don't know what you believe in supernaturally but i gotta think that there is no logical explanation for me to have gotten out of that building that night considering where i was in the crowd and you start thinking of all these things when when your mind's running away so there's a couple of the some of these other books that i've read there's a couple of the people that said the same thing yeah i I mean i was led over here and i've never seen this person again and never saw his picture or yep you know because when when jim and i split Literally, Chris, we're talking – all I had to do was take a couple a couple inches of a step over to the left or the right, and you and I wouldn't be sitting here talking today. We would have been lost. Yeah. So Jim went one way. I went the other, and the only explanation I can come up with is that I was led there. You know, It's pitch black at this point. I don't know where I'm going. Some something something extraordinary happened yeah. in there, and you know, maybe I, I won't know it in this lifetime, but something did. Mm-hmm. So we finally get to the hospital, and um, – they put us on a, on a small school bus. At this point, I mean, Rhode Island couldn't handle something of this magnitude. They had to call in help from Massachusetts, Connecticut. I think it might have been one of the first times that Shriners in Boston opened up their burn unit because it was just a catastrophe of, of, from a medical standpoint sure. at one time. I'm in this bus riding down to the hospital, and again, the hospital could have only been about 15, 20 minutes away, but that was, that was hours in my mind at that mm-hmm. time. And all I remember was just the smell of that bus. It was, I just call it the smell of death. I mean, it was, you know, people are vomiting everywhere. I'm looking around and people were sort of in my condition. And um, it was, it was, it was harrowing. It was singed hair and just, it was, it's, you know, it was in my, it was in my nostrils for months and I just couldn't get rid of it. It was just a constant reminder of that night. Um, The reality of the situation hit me again on that bus ride when there was an EMT sitting in the front, kind of just talking to all of us before we got there. And I remember at one point I'm sitting there, you know, I'm, I got my head kneeled down into my lap and I'm just trying to process everything. And uh, I asked an EMT what was going on and he said something to the effect of, you know, hey, you guys are the lucky ones. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm not thinking clearly. I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, there are some people badly burned and some people may have even lost their lives tonight. And I just couldn't. It wasn't registering. Wait a second. No, Jim and I were front row. 
I get out. I just haven't found him yet, okay? I mean, everybody's safe. Nobody died. Maybe there's yeah. damage to the building. The band's going to have to reimburse us. I'm not, I'm not really thinking realistically at this point. I uh, get to the hospital, and um, they had to put me in a pediatric unit because they had no open beds for anything. And one of the more – one of the hardest things that night, too, is when my family finally arrived to the hospital. And they, they saw me in that condition. Um, they tried to not tell my siblings and you know other family members just to see what the gravity was at the time. And again, they were able to do that because technology wasn't around yet. So they were able to kind of keep it a little insulated for the time being. But um, they eventually found out they came down too. So when they put me in the hospital bed, you know, I'm just they, you know they put they started the morphine right away, and I just was oblivious to everything. But when I saw my parents come in and my mother just break down and lose it. That, that snapped me right back and just, you know, again, show me how, how severe this was. And I'm in a room with all other fire survivors, too, and we're all just – you didn't have to – you could just look in someone's eyes and know exactly what we were thinking. Mm-hmm. And it, it was just – it was – it was what, disturbing. What uh, what exact injuries did you have? So I sustained, um, and again, at this time, I didn't really know. I ended up getting, um, thankfully, no third-degree burns. I didn't have to have any surgery or skin grafting, but I got a lot of second-degree burns on my on my face, my head, um, my neck. Uh, my ears were completely burned. Um, a lot of my back, too. I mean, from a physical standpoint, it, it paled in comparison to sure, a lot of people. Of but I was still hung up for about a month or so. You know, I went through the dressings and everything. They had to, you know, snip off little pieces of my ear. But for the most part, I was fine. Just a lot of second degree burns. And again, I'm hearing, and I'm hearing people that night with the doctor saying, "There's some people that had over forty percent of their bodies burned." And I'm, right, I'm with- thinking. If I'm if I'm on the low end and I can still now the physical part is starting to catch up to me when when the medicine wore off I'm, I can't imagine what some of those I've met some of the most courageous people from that incident I couldn't imagine what they had to go through. Well, yeah, because there's, there's, you mentioned forty percent burns. That's third degree burns. There's skin grafts. There's amputations. There were a lot of people who were who were in medically induced comas for the surgeries and you know the the rehab and the therapy. And uh, my my hat goes off to all of them for what they had to go through. I was reading once again that you, when someone's got really bad burns, you have to cut the skin open because it will constrict and basically it was, suffocate and kill those yep. appendages. And I'm sure you know all about that. So a lot of research. About one that. of the they wanted to keep me in Rhode Island at the hospital. Um, I, I wanted to go home. I wanted out of there. I was able to do my medical care back in Worcester. Um, but what I had to do about two or three times a day. Is and according, you know, my father had to help me out because a lot of it was on my back. You have to scrub away the dead skin mm. to get you're right to get new skin he- to heal through. And they put me on. They tried to give me pain medication. I didn't even want it. I, I just you know what? If I have to just go through this, it's it, it's it's minor compared to what some people are going to have to go through. And it it, it was torture though. Scrubbing it, it, with like a Brillo pad. Type uh, of thing yeah, or? I think like a, like a regular like you know, like a like a, a pad or a loofah or something like that. Oh. Just anything where you have to get that dead skin away. And I, I had to apply you know Silvadine, you know burn medication nonstop. And it was uh, it was an ordeal. It really was. See, once again, that, that right now just sounds awful. And you keep mentioning this. You were one of the lucky ones. The on lucky the ones. End of the injury totem pole. Correct. And that was horrible. It, I just I again I can't process or comprehend what those people endured. So when did you finally um, find out the what happened with Jim? Yep. And again, now where they discharged me from the hospital at about five or six in the morning, um, you know, and the, the ride home was just, you know, my father was there with us. At, my family took a few different cars down there because once they all got wind of it, they all came down. 
So I'm riding home with my father and um, we just I, I couldn't say anything that whole ride home. I just I was thankful. I was I was grateful to be alive and have my family there, but I just really couldn't even talk. It was just it was too much. I got home about six six thirty, give or take. You would have thought we were having a family reunion going on at my house. I mean, once everybody found out, they were just there. So I get home that day. Obviously, I'm off from work. Um, I just I just passed right out. I got home. Maybe it was the medication still in me, and I just I just zonked right out. When I woke up again, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, why why are all you people here? It's Friday morning. Why is no one at work or at school? And again, did I wake up from a bad dream? I, I couldn't put two and two together. And then right when I woke up and saw the TV, I'm like, oh, yeah, mm. we were there. And it all rushed right back. We didn't find out about Jim until Saturday afternoon when they positively identified him. That Friday morning when I, when I first came out of it, I guess, they had set up a you know a 1-800 number to report people that you thought were at the club that night which would check against hospital databases and, and things like that. And we put Jim's name in and there was no information. But then I, but then I guess I don't, I don't, I don't want to call this a funny story. I'm looking at my hospital band. And again, when I got admitted the night before, it was chaos. You know, I would get attended to by a nurse. She'd have to go somewhere else, you know, et cetera, things like that. My hospital band said Michelob Bacardi. And I'm like, wait a second. My name's Mike Riccardi. So my mother calls the 1-800 number, puts, puts my real name in, and there was no information on me at the time. Huh. So that gave me a little bit more optimism. Like, wait a second. If they put my name in and I'm registering back as missing, maybe Jim, Jim is still in a hospital. He's just wondering where I am right now. Michelob Bacardi. That's Michelob Bacardi. So I'm, weird, like, I'm like, I'm 19, man. Wait, <laughs> have I done that bad? <laughs> so um, as Friday really started progressing into the afternoon, early evening, I just had this gut feeling that – Jim was gone, and it was fine. By Friday night, I was accepting it. Saturday afternoon, they finally gave us the word that they had they had identified him, and uh, it was just kind of like reliving it all over again. It, it was yes, it was a sense of closure. At least the waiting game was over, but now the real work has to not now the real pain has to begin. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the mental and emotional pain. I mean, that that's some really heavy stuff, Mike, and. Um you know, you're talking about the now the real work has to begin. So you have this 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 horrible tragedy of mm-hmm. the 100 people passing away and 300 other people approximately like you're surviving, injured, right? Surviving. Yep. What did you think? Um, somebody's got to pay for this, or because a lot yeah. of stuff just went out of control at that point. Correct. Legally, you know that. I took a few weeks off from you know off from school. I had to just register everything. I had to just I had to be away from everything. I you know, and in those few weeks, I I, I became this you know, albeit in a bad way, I became this sort of minor celebrity in the area. I was in sure. People Magazine. I was on an MTV show. I mean, but wait, that that's not how you want it, right? So, and of course, I still had all the bandages on. So wherever I went, I you know, I'd get bombarded with questions even at home. So I tried to be as you know kind of isolated from everybody as i could for those few weeks just just my family close friends i didn't want to be hounded by people you know we went to gym services you know i was still keeping in touch with folks from the school and and, and gym services were the first time i met his parents mm. so i mean that was Awful, that was an, that was an ordeal again jim and carol his his mother and father two of the most courageous and inspirational people you'll ever meet it was tough meeting them in that environment but They've, they've welcomed me right in, and, and that, that's made the healing process a lot easier, too. They very easily could have looked at me as somebody who, well, you represent my only son passing away. Right, right. But it's been the complete opposite. Your idea. And I'm, the show exactly. Yeah. So at that time, 
I get back to school. I wanted to resume a normal life. I wasn't thinking of like the legality of it. I mean, I'm 19. I'm kind of naive to a lot of things. Um, but then later on that year, in the fall winter of 2003, they finally handed down the indictments. And they only charged Dan Beakley and the two club owners with 200 counts each of involuntary manslaughter. Because without, Dan Beakley set off the pyro. Physically right. set the pyro and off, the, correct. The, okay, right. And then obviously the club owners, it happened in your establishment. Sure. Now, Jim's father, I accompanied him to all like, you know, um, when the press first announced it. Anything that had to do with the legal part of it, I just wanted to be there for him. And that's when like a lot of outrage started coming out about, well, you know, who signed off on this building? I mean, there, there were a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, yeah, they put that foam padding in the nightclub, but, you know, a fire inspector or some official had to had to approve it. So all these questions started coming up and yeah, I, I started to get angry and hostile and, and bitter. And that started in that first summer of 2003 when you want a scapegoat, you want somebody to blame. You know, my best friend's gone. You know, I almost died. You know, our dream, our vision was, was literally destroyed that night and somebody's got to pay for this. And, you know, you, you do that, you know, I guess when you're younger, over the years, I've really learned to accept it and deal with it in a positive way. That's why in the book, I mentioned nothing about that. I didn't want those negative feelings to, to live. Well, your book is very, yeah, it's a very positive, you know, kind of remembrance of you and, and Jim and all that. It, it wanted to be about, you know, the, the positive things, not, not the bad stuff that came out. But I mean, yeah, for a while I was, I was hurt. I was angry. I was on this 19 year old kid who just went through something that most adults never have to go through. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to process it, you know, but there was millions of dollars that ended up, you know, all the, because everybody, the settlements, right. Settlements, right. And and it went, and it went, you know, based upon your, um, I think if you were a family member of someone who passed, you know, there there was a good, you know, a, a good settlement for, you know, lost wages and things like that. Those of us that didn't really endure too much medical stuff, we didn't really, you know, didn't receive much off that. I mean, I, but did I'll you take, get any? Did you get something? I, I got a minor oh. payout. Yes, a very minor settlement. It was, um, I, again, I mean, and that's only because it was a class action suit, and I felt bad taking that. But Jim's parents were like, well, you know what? If, if it's coming to you, just take it. I mean, I wasn't out there. I mean, I was, I was a college student. I didn't need, you know. Thankfully, I was in a, in a in a time in life where I wasn't supporting a family. I didn't have a house, you know, things like that. So, but even his parents urged me, hey, if, if there's money coming to you, you know, mm. what the hell, just take it. And Jim's parents got a settlement. Yeah, I as believe. Well. I believe so. Yes. Did you think that um, – did you blame the band at all? At first, I was sort of on the fence about it, but I never really truly placed any blame on them specifically, um, mainly because I was biased because Dan Beakley and the band gave us such a great night. So, yes, there was a little bit of a, a biased opinion I had, but then as the years went on, I mean – all these years later, I don't. Nobody had any malicious intents that night. I mean, do you think the club owners think, "Hey, we're going to start a fire tonight and and kill people"? No, it just. I finally got into a better place in my life where all that negativity is gone. I mean, yes, did they act stupidly? Of course. I mean, they were jamming people in. They were breaking fire codes and violations. But you would have found that anywhere that night. They had they. The perfect storm came together for those guys, yeah. and unfortunately, that's how it happened. But all these years later, I don't, I don't really, you know, place quote fault. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just, I've learned to just move on and just hopefully we can learn from this. Well, you know, the, the, the band, like you said, you know, legally they shouldn't have set off pyre on this, but they're just trying to put on a, a rock show. Correct. And here's something, another eerie thing. Uh, we had a show that night in Albany at Northern Lights. Fonzie okay. Did. Yep. And Rich, 
our guitar player used to put um, a little spark jib on the on the on the stock of his guitar. The okay, stock, all right, yep. Where the tuning pegs are, and it would shoot off, kind of like an Ace Frehley. Oh, all right, yeah, thing. okay, yep. And that night, he shot it off, and it. I re- vividly remember this. Yep. It hit the ceiling and went and kind of crumpled, like kind oh. of flash, like a flash. Correct. Yep. Thing. And we were like, wow, that was pretty cool. Like, wow, that's funny. That's what and we thought. And then we drove back to the hotel and turned on the TV and saw Station Because you weren't too far from Rhode Island that night. We actually. weren't. Yeah. So – it could have just as easily been us with that yep. with that spark thing. And yep. once again, are you completely in the wrong for setting off pyro? Probably yes, but you don't think that. Yep. It's a rock show, man. You know. And of course, in, in in the weeks that followed the fire, they were asking previous club owners if there was pyro in their clubs, and they wanted to pin it on somebody. And again, everyone's talking behind their lawyers at that point. You know, everyone's going into defense mode. And again, I, I had heard that pyro had been approved for the club that night. Another person they interviewed not long after was a uh, member of a Kiss tribute band that played in the Rhode Island area. And even he said to see Pyro in the station was not an unusual thing. I mean, they shot it off all the time in there. Unfortunately, that night, right. it just it just ended tragically. And for how for how like um, I guess for how frivolous and how minor those pods were, you could have thrown a cigarette at that wall that night. Polyurethane would have had the same result. There was a fire extinguisher at the soundboard 40 feet away. I mean, just Gosh. common sense just wasn't a factor that night. Right. Maybe if some people had thought a little bit differently, you th- you always think of the what ifs. Unfortunately, what happened happened, but there could have been a couple instances where lives could have been saved. If there were sprinklers, if a club employee got up on the stage and announced exits or gave some sort of a you know a warning as to what to do, but you know that was then. This is now. Just hopefully, you can learn from it and. Just move on. Did you ever have? Uh, did you ever meet any of the other survivors? Or have, oh yeah, like any kind of group. There's actually there's a there's a very good network of people. Actually, I met a lot of them um, that first summer. Um, actually, I talk about this in the book too. Where the night that I was riding to the hospital in that bus, there was a woman behind me um, that again was acting um, in, in the same manner in the same manner that Jen was that night, helping me. You know, just you know, talking me through it, putting a cold cloth on my on my on my mm-hmm. back. Her name is uh, Lisa Hale, and I actually reconnected with her five months later. A bunch of the survivors got together. So it's a great network of people that I've been privileged to be a part of, you know, albeit in the worst circumstances, but they're, they're a great group of people. They really are. Did you go to the, uh, to the tribute concert that they had? I, in 2008? Yeah, the Dunkin I, I did, yep. It's actually um, – so at that time, there was a charity called the Station Family Fund, and I believe that's what it was for. And Dee Snyder, who's been tremendous through all this, he put that on. Um, I believe Winger played that night. Aaron Lewis played that night. Striper, I, I think. I think – yeah, correct. Yep. It was it was a great night, and a, the music community really came together and helped one of their own. You know, Because mm-hmm. these bands are looking at it like that very easily could have been us. We could have been playing in a venue like that, and that could have happened. So that was that was a great night. It was it was a redeeming night. It mm-hmm. was um it was it was uh it was bittersweet. Maybe I'll say that. Maybe that's right, right, the right, more right. appropriate term for it. Just a couple more questions. What do you think the um, the legacy of the station fire, like the nightclub, is it? Did it help with safety regulations? I would like to think so. Um, I heard, I want to say it was last year, maybe hopefully at the national level, but I know internationally last year, I want to say it was either in Romania, there was an incident that happened where another nightclub fire happened. And I sit there and shake my head and go, have we not learned? I mean, 100 people had to lose their lives that night. I mean, 
can't you take anything out of that? So I, maybe as a society, maybe a lot of people are still reactive. I, I like to think that we can be proactive in these in these situations. Now you know if you own a nightclub, you better make sure you have X, Y, and Z implemented. You better not be filling that venue. You better have sprinklers. You you better have working exits. These things better be in place or you're putting all your patrons at risk. Mm-hmm. I would hope that's the legacy. But again, at the international level, when I saw that story, it was very discouraging. But now, I mean, a lot of clubs I go into, I see things like that in place. And I just, you know, it, it does. It makes me feel good that at least if nothing else, we can at least, you know, teach a lesson. How long was it before you were able to go to another rock show? Yeah, you know, that's that's a, uh, actually, you know, I started thinking um, I canceled a few things right after. Uh, one of the things I really regret to this day is um, I, I just couldn't imagine not doing this with Jim anymore. Mm-hmm. So in the time that we were in, uh, arranging the Jack interview, I had, been, I had put in requests to Vince Neal's management because he was doing a tour right through Massachusetts. And about a week after the fire happened, um, we got word that Vince approved the interview. And that Jim and I would have been on cloud nine. I ended up canceling it because I just couldn't imagine going through that. I regret it all these years later, and I think Jim's probably cursing me up there too. <laughs> I went to see White Snake about two and a half weeks after the nightclub fire, but it was in a big five thousand seat venue. They went over all. I mean, I again, I don't. The music can't suffer. I mean, that's what brought us there that night. That's what. That's how our friendship formed. So I couldn't. I couldn't let that suffer. Right. I mean, I couldn't. I couldn't hold that hostage. So I saw White Snake that night, and then I was back seeing Poison again that summer. And I was on stage for their show. I, I write about the show in that book. And their their management pulled me aside and said, "Hey, as you know, Poison puts on a lot of pyro in their shows, but we have the fire marshal here. We have trained officials, and that, and that that's fine. I mean, if you're doing things the safe way." Those things don't bother me. It's it's when you get into a venue that has seven foot ceilings, yeah. you don't want to go lighting off pyro in there. Right. Just you know, have some common sense. Right. So I was Chris. I was going back to shows the next month. I wasn't going to let that stop me. Last question: What's your favorite memory of Jim? My favorite memory of Jim is um, <laughs> uh, he got a lot of great stories. Um, uh, we had. Uh, I, I read about this briefly in the book. I'll expand on it just a little bit. Is um about get into our show, and it, Jim was the most passionate person you'll ever meet. I mean, he made people around you better. He just had that zest for life. And um, I remember one time, um, this is just his, you know, his persona right on display. I tried playing guitar in college. Um, I, I very briefly talk about this story and we were having a talent show out at Nichols and he would always persuade his friends, follow your dreams, do what makes you happy. So we're having a talent show at school and I started trying to play rhythm guitar again. I was not very good, but in my mind I was. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, you know, I'm going to sign up for the show, whatever. And I'm just going to play poisons. Every rose has its thorn. Very simple three, four chord progression. I mean, I should be able to get this. No problem. My voice is horrible, but I'm going to get up there, play guitar and sing it. Cause I love doing that. So when I told Jim about it, of course he's being like the typical best friend, encouraging me, you know, giving me tips. Um, I, I think in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, well, yeah, your voice is horrible, but whatever. <laughs> So I get to the show that night. I'm nervous. I, I look up. Jim recruited about 15 or 20 people to the show, and I just looked out and kind of gave him, you know, like thanks, man. Like he, he just support you. He was a he was a great supporting friend. He was just one of the best guys you could ever meet, and you'd be very hard pressed to find anybody who didn't have a good thing to say about him. And I'll say to this day, uh, those that never met Jim are really at a loss. 
you know, they never yeah. had, they never got to meet him. Mike, you're a good guy, man. Chris, thank you. I can't thank you so much for this. Thank you very much. This has been this has been incredible. Thanks so much to Michael Riccardi for um, sharing that 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 story with us. Terrible, emotional, harrowing, scary story of of what happened at the station nightclub fire. Uh, and Michael's book is called Just a Thought Away. It tells so much more than than the tragic story of the station nightclub fire in February of 2003, 13 years ago. The book tells the uh, the tale of Mike's friendship with Jim Gahan, how he dealt with Jim's loss. And everything that happened after that deadly night, it's an unbelievable read and it'll change your perspective on what's important and give you a better appreciation for your life and the little things in life, friendship, family, uh, and just each day. You know what I mean? Help Mike carry on his friend's legacy and check out this book, Just a Thought Away. You can get it at Amazon. Uh, and if you do that, please use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links. You find that podcast one dot com. And speaking of Amazon, thanks to you guys for supporting all the great sponsors of Talk is Jericho. You can find them all at podcast one dot com. Just click on the Killer Deals button in the top right hand corner of the page, then hit the Talk is Jericho button. You see all my sponsors there, including my Amazon links. I got Amazon links for the USA, the UK, the Canada. Hey, every time you use the Talk is Jericho Amazon links, Amazon kicks back a small percentage of the show to help us cover production costs. You can buy just about anything you want, anything you can think of on Amazon. Amazon. I bought the new episode of Walking Dead last night, the uh, continuation of season six, and I did that through the Talk is Jericho links. It's no, there's no uh, 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 item too big or too small. You do it through the Talk is Jericho button, and you're going to help out this show. Got the links for the USA, the UK, the Canada A, uh, and don't forget that yeah, we need your help, man. We need your love. Using those Talk is Jericho uh, Amazon links won't cost you anything extra. No hidden fees, extra challenges. Just go to podcast1.com. Click on the Killer Deals button in the top right corner of the page. Then hit the Talk is Jericho button, all right? Do that for me. Do it for your boy. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and thank you so much for uh, going to iTunes to listen. Keep listening now for the 60-second AP News headlines coming up next. And next uh, Friday, it's been a long time coming. I tracked this a few months ago, but he's finally here. The Blue Meanie from, from the Blue World Order is here. Uh, what a great guy. Tremendous story. Days of ECW. Short time in EC, uh, WCW and then, of course, uh, WWE as well. He's still out there killing it. Where did he get this crazy gimmick from? Uh, all of that will be answered on Friday. Plus, I'll tell you the exclusive behind-the-scenes story of the Clive Davis Grammy party that I went to with Paul Stanley, and it was a veritable who's-who list of Hollywood stars. I'll tell you how I got there and the uh, hilarious stories that ensued. So thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much to Michael Riccardi. Uh, remember, live your life each day because you never know when it's going to be your last make good friends treat them well and uh and just remember that every day that that uh that you're alive is, is a blessed day so thank you so much you know i love you and a big yeah boy to you see you on friday you can download new episodes of talk is jericho every wednesday and friday at podcast one.com that's podcast one.com